Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Technology Report. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Mark Montgomery of the Center on Cyber and Technology Innovation at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. But first, our tech headlines for the week. House Republicans are urging Secretary of State Antony Blinken against renewing a technology cooperation agreement with China that expires on August 27. The initiative began during the Carter administration and is focused on exchanges, uh, technology exchanges between the two countries. Japan's government-backed Japanese Investment Corporation is investing $6.3 billion to acquire the country's JSR, a company that is a leader in a critical chip-making technology called Photoresists, the light-sensitive materials vital to etching patterns into silicon wafers that then in turn become semiconductors. And Zero Trust Data Security said it has struck a partnership to integrate Rubik Security Cloud with Microsoft Sentinel and Azure's OpenAI service that would harness generative artificial intelligence as well as natural language processing to speed cyber incident detection and response. Joining us now uh, to discuss uh, the week in technology, cyber, and more is Mark Montgomery, a retired United States Navy Rear Admiral who served as the Director of Indo-Pacific Command's operations. He's now the Senior Director of the Center on Cyber and Technology Innovation at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. He is also the Executive Director of the Cyber Solarium 2.0 Project 501c3 that is now the repository of what was the highly successful Cyber Solarium uh, commission uh, that he executive directed that has been so instrumental in improving the nation's cyber security. Mark, thanks so very much for joining us. It's always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thank you very much for having me, Vago. Great to be here. Uh, and a word from our sponsors before we get underway. Our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell. Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval uh, coverage. Mark, uh, a lot of activity. Welcome back from Taiwan. And I want to get to that uh, in a minute. One of the uh, world's most technologically sophisticated uh, countries and certainly uh, at, at the center of some uh tensions between uh, the United States uh, and China, in part because of, of China's insistence to uh, uh, take possession of Taiwan, whether Taiwan likes it or not. Um, I want to ask you first about the activity on the hills that we've uh, had. Um, we're now in a brief lull. Obviously, we're in a little bit of a recess. Um, House uh, and Senate authorizers, as well as defense appropriators, have been executing their marks on the administration's budget requests. Um, we, we also have a lot of questions about whether or not some rather important pieces of legislation, including on infrastructure uh, and on science and on technology, uh, will, will actually uh, get funded. Walk us through uh, what's going on on the stuff that we're focused on on this program, right? On the chip side, the cyber side, the AI side, and the technology side. Uh, what do you like what you're seeing from these marks? Maybe what you're not liking that you're seeing? We can see the House mark now. We can't really see the Senate mark, but I'll tell you on the House side, you know, there's 15 good, strong cyber provisions in there. You know, most of them are in the, the cyber title and a couple of them are buried elsewhere. There's a very strong, you know, and, and I'll first start with organizational. There's a very strong one that says, look, we're codifying DIUX, the Defense um, Innovation Experimentation Unit, and we're going to have a report directly to the Secretary of Defense and set up a good guidelines for it and good rules for it. I was, I was glad to see that. Um, 
there's also uh, you know some organization and how we do our cyber academic engagement at the Department of Defense. You know, codifying that, getting that right. And then there was one you know that I think is you know people won't understand it when they read it, but it's about it's it's about how we get the the strategic you know the cybersecurity of our strategic weapons complex right, making sure we're getting the right focus on that, the right leadership on it. So organizationally, there's some good stuff in there. Um, I also thought that there was. Uh, you know, some good uh, ops stuff in there, you know, taking a look at the resilience of the cyber force, you know, how are we doing, how the force is doing, you know, maybe trying to get a better understanding why readiness is not creeping up, you know, despite six or seven years of good funding, you know, the cyber force readiness is kind, is kind of um, static or even slightly declining. Have a GAO, it has GAO look at cyberspace operations management, see if there's a management end to this and, and then increased pay authorities in there for the Department of Defense and cyber. So, all of that made me pretty happy. And then finally, there was some good international um, language in there. There's the, the Taiwan Cybersecurity Resilience Act, which has previously passed the, um, uh, you know, has been put on the floor of both the House and the Senate. The House version was added in the NDA. I'm hoping the Senate one was added in so that this is an easy get, but this is about focusing our, our efforts on, on Taiwan cyber resilience. So, there in, in the House NDAA, you can see 15 good provisions, all of which, you know, I would support, but I highlighted seven or eight of them there that I think are going to make a real difference. Um, are you satisfied with the overall uh, cyber and technological direction that you're seeing from lawmakers? You know, I am a little worried, you know, uh, about whether we're going to properly appropriate the science end of the Chips and Science Act, right? You know, people get focused on the chips part, the 52 billion there, but there was a, a hundred billion in, in science. And that was about getting, you know, our basic R&D right, getting our STEM education systems right at the, in the graduate school levels. It was about, you know, investing in competition with China across a number of technologies, not just chips, although there was additional chips money in that science part. Um, People tend to fixate on the chips part. Uh, and look, there's good stuff in there, not just for, um, not just grants to get, you know, efforts going at different plants, um, you know, at different um, fab construction and things like that. But also there were programs in there to build up workforce, you know, STEM workforce to support chips. And there's tax incentives built into it uh, that are gonna aggressive, that I, I hope are aggressively taken by companies uh, uh, to, to attempt to, um, uh, you know, do construction here of fabs and, and, um, and, uh, and, and get us, you know, not, not independent of our allies and partners, but less dependent on our allies and partners. So you see some of that getting funded, but you don't see the science stuff getting funded as well. That worries me. Um, so I just hope we can get that right. You know, and this is in the context of we have not seen all the appropriation bills come down either yet. Really, people have focused on the hack D and the, um, and the um, state, uh, but there are, other, there are many other shoes to drop, so to speak. It's uh, interesting that when legislation goes through, right, there's a lot of activity, it's passed, and then we have a tendency of forgetting about it. And each of these measures, right, I mean, President Biden was, was rolling out what ordinarily would be a big deal, but was part of the infrastructure measure, was, uh, you know, $40 billion broadband internet uh, uh, proposal. Is... is um, are, are we sort of understating the tectonic nature of these investments that we haven't made in a long time that are bundled up into these large pieces of legislation? I mean, from your standpoint, how important are they 
for the strategic future of the country, given that actually we've we've kind of assumed that the laissez-faire approach is sort of going to get us there. I understand that there are people who are concerned about uh, industrial strategy, but then again, the government has been in the business of picking winners and losers for a long time. How important is this in investment from your standpoint in you its know, totality? So I think the Bilateral uh, you know, Infrastructure Act um, really, excuse me, Bipartisan Infrastructure Act, um, really did have some great stuff in there. Now, look, some of it's really boring and important and getting done. You know, there was cybersecurity programs for transportation and, uh, um, and uh, energy in there. And, you know, and it's $50 million a year to this kind of rural uh, electric companies, $50 million a year to this kind of R&D. And you see that rolling out. And, and you're right, there's not any attention paid to that. And I, I'm okay with that. I think what you're talking about is when we're doing these really big infrastructure investments um, in telecom and bad, you know, in bandwidth management, things like that, you would expect a little more. Now, I will say, um, you know, one of the downfalls of spending two to three trillion dollars in two years is that after a while, $50 billion doesn't sound like a lot. Um, right. So probably that's part of the reason it's not getting the attention. But also, you're right. Once the bills pass, people think it's done. And you and I know the appropriations have to be done right. The, um, you know, the authorizations, the one we tend to focus on, the appropriations have to be right. And then the executive branch has to properly, you know, make rules about it, you know, put out the decision, you know, get a decision and, and place things. And, and that, that tends to, you, you lose a little bit of attention at each of those stages. Now, look, as long as the money goes out the door, Vago, we're in the right position. As long as we're properly, efficiently and effectively spending this money to build the right infrastructure now, we should be happy. Uh, you and I should be unhappy if we're not spending on the right stuff or the money's not being made available that was previously agreed to. So, you know, as long as those things are happening, I, I get that the press isn't, you know, you're not having the hoopla around the events. Um, but, you know, I'm a little less concerned about that and a little more concerned to make sure that this uh, kind of boring stuff gets funded. Um, one other thing I'd emphasize, you know, we're putting a lot of money into STEM education and I love it. Um, we, we need to understand that in our country, the, the majority of PhDs who we pay to go get PhDs in our universities are non-US citizens who are excited about going to school in our country, excited about working in our country, excited about building a new life in our country as a very strong contributing, you know, eventually wealthy member of society. And insanely, after we pay for them to go to school, we send a percentage of them home every year. Right. We've got to fix that immigration part of this as well. And, you know, we, we can't forget that because the workforce still lags our aspiration. Um, let me uh, ask a follow up to that. Right. Um, Mike Gallagher and Raj uh, Krishnamurthy obviously are the chair and the ranking member uh, of the China Select uh, Committee. Uh, Republicans are now saying that Antony Blinken shouldn't renew uh, the technology uh, cooperation agreement that's existed between the United States and China since the Carter administration. Obviously, that was an outgrowth of uh, the Nixon administration's outreach. Uh, and, and it's a big debate on this very question. Right. Should Chinese students be allowed to come and study in the United States? Should there be technological partnerships? Uh, and this has become increasingly problematic. At one point, you could argue that this tied, uh, you know, that both sides were benefiting from this. But now there's increasingly a concern that almost everything that China is learning from this may be used in part for nefarious intent. On the other hand, some thoughtful minds like uh, Dr. Eric Schmidt 
uh, and, and others make the case, hey, look, it's important to make sure that we continue cooperation, that we're, we're getting Chinese students to come to the United States. We're benefiting from that. Many of them do not want to return to China, I should point out, uh, ultimately, and, and decide to stay in the United States. You know, should this, what should happen with a technology agreement? And what are the bounds and limits, you think, to technological cooperation? I mean, is any technological cooperation with China possible? And should any Chinese students be studying in the United States? And which Chinese students, if, if so, right? Because ultimately, the more interaction you have, it has in certain senses benefited us because in part, you have folks in China who understand what's not working about China, right? Having seen what does work in the United States, for example, and the West. You know, so a lot of questions in there and, and I'll, I'll, I'll answer it this way and say, first, I, I agree that you know, we, there is some technological cooperation that can happen. Not all technologies dual use technology, right? That has a military national unification. Increasingly, there's less and less of that, but there's still some. Um, not all Chinese students who, um, who want to come to the United States are agents of the state, so to speak. I think what we need to do is have a good vetting program and allow over the students who pass the vetting program. The Japanese are a few years ahead of us on this. They began to really look at this a decade ago and they've created a, uh, a, a, uh, a, what I think is a fair vetting system. It has ended up in a reduction in Chinese students, but it hasn't ended up in a zeroing out of Chinese students, right? They still have a, a healthy number. So, um, you know, we probably have to do a good vetting process to make sure we're not hiring in, you know, PLA officers to come get their PhD at our university. And I think we can all agree on that. On the other hand, allowing some, you know, some Chinese in, uh, and then we have to be careful what they work on. Right. They can't immediately be dropped into uh, what is effectively a Department of Defense basic research project that has definite dual use technologies. I think we're smart enough a country to set up rule sets that govern this. I think our universities are a little lax in their implementation. We have to be tougher on them to make sure they're not. But we can get to a solution on this. We can do this effectively. And the other thing I'd mention is there's a whole lot of other countries out there, too, that we're equally uh, unhelpful with India, Indonesia, you know, Vietnam. Uh, we need to work with these, and some, even some of our European partners, but mostly I think in Asia, we need to allow these partners, um, you know, STEM candidates to come over here. And in that case, I would want some to return to Indonesia and return to India, you know, having been experienced in the United States and, and the way we address problems and the way we think and, and inform and lead their sectors. Uh, but also some stay and make a lot of money here for all of us and pay a lot of taxes and help the U.S. system work. It's worked. You know, we managed to do this really well for 50 years during the Cold War and somehow and in the immediate aftermath of the Cold War. And somehow we're booting it up now uh, with poor immigration strategies on this and, and a pox on both sides of the house. You know, we need to get this fixed. Um, I, uh, I would agree with you that we need some form of sensible immigration reform. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's what's interesting is you and I are both uh, fans of President Eisenhower's. And it's, it's funny that he's having uh, a, a welcome renaissance. And I think that there were actually a lot of Eisenhower era programs that are actually tremendously applicable to this, including guest worker programs and a way to solve challenges at the border uh, and, and, uh, and, and other things. But um, uh, more on that later. We're not, this isn't the immigration report. Uh, let, me, let me take you to CISA. 
the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency uh, it plays a, a critical role in safeguarding uh, the nation's cyber ecosystem across government, industry, and indeed across society. Uh, and CISA repeatedly has played a key role in, in sort of um, flagging both disinformation and, and misinformation. Um, I, we certainly saw that from Chris Krebs and Chris Krebs drew the ire of uh, former President Trump for having uh, done that. Uh, and also speaking truth to power, you know, in, in terms of the sanctity of the electoral system and, and what have you. Um, one person's disinformation, however, is, is another person's path to power, uh, potentially. Uh, and so those people who end up umpiring are, are liable to be uh, attacked, especially if they're calling strikes against your side. What's the nature of this recent span among Republicans uh, and CISA? And what does it mean for CISA and its ability to do the job that under Jen Easterly, it's been doing very well, just like it's a job that it's been doing very well under Chris Krebs, just like it was a job that was doing very well under Suzanne Spalding? Well, first, I want to agree with you that I think CISA under, uh, under as PPD under Suzanne Spalding and as CISA under Chris Krebs and uh, Jenny Shelley has done a, uh, a very good job. Um, look, there's a lot more work to be done. They're not doing things perfectly. Uh, in fact, my complaints to them are completely outside the disinformation zone. But I also think my complaints are sheltered within an idea that they're a growing organization that has a monumental task of helping build the public-private collaboration that's going to defend our critical infrastructures. So in that broad context, this is doing a good job. Um, I'm glad to see the House Republicans and Democrats gave them the appropriate budget just a week ago, you know, 2.94 billion about what the administration asked for, you know, money's in slightly different pockets, but still, you know, it, recognizing that CISA is a growth area and an important agency for the, for the, uh, for, for the legislature and the executive branch to invest in. That's the, the start. Now, look, on the specific issue, I read through the press reportings, and it seems to me the complaints are about, uh, you know, internal emails between people, outsiders, who are on their cybersecurity, you know, infrastructure, uh, uh, cybersecurity advisory committee. These aren't even government employees. These are, these are people who are brought in to be like graybeards, and they're talking about what role citizens should have in disinformation. They can do that all they want. I have not seen... Um, you know, Jen Easley or any of her team, you know, stepping out in, in any un untoward way on this. I think this is absolutely much ado about nothing. And it, and it just, I think it reflects like a kind of like a, um, um, a, 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 a compulsive fear uh, of uh, censorship from the government that is absolutely not rooted in fact. CISA is not an organization that censors. I'll go one more thing and say, if CISA wanted to censor free speech, I don't think they could, and that's a different right. issue. But, you know, they're just not, this is the wrong agency, the wrong issue, the wrong time. And, and um, you know, I, I really think people should leave this be and move on. And, and beyond all of that, this isn't even CISA employees we're talking about here in, this, in these email chains. They're an advisory committee, you know, whose, whose opinions are of, you know, no different than your or my, your or my opinion. Um, so really, this is much ado about nothing, and it's inappropriate to be attacking CISA over this. Um, let me uh, move on uh, to uh, Russia uh, briefly, because I do want to get to Taiwan and, and some of your uh, takeaways uh, from your uh, visit. 
Um, each time Russia, uh, Mark, suffers uh, a setback on the battlefield or perceives a challenge, it has a tendency of lashing out uh, against the United States and its allies. Obviously, it makes the case that we're, uh, you know, uh, you know, a party in this war helping Ukraine fight Russia as opposed to supporting Russia and its illegal uh, invasion by uh, Ukraine. Last week wasn't a good one for Vladimir Putin, uh, who had a mutiny on his hands that may have been abetted by some of his you know, uh, by, you know, maybe even one of his senior most army uh, commanders. Um, we have been kind of shields up since uh, late 21, actually, not just February 22 when the invasion started. Is there anything new we should expect in the wake of uh, these setbacks where Russia is going to want to punch uh, all of us in the nose one way or another? Well, first, you're the uh, master of understatement to say he was a bad week for Vladimir Putin. It was a bad, bad week for Vladimir This gets at the core of his credibility. And, and the reason I bring that up is you're, you're then asking, should we be more concerned? And the answer is yes. Look, we've been in Shields Up for a long time. You know, um, Shields Up is a good, uh, you know, kind of like, um, you know, public statement. The real issue is investing in your shields. And I hope that people have been reading everything else SIS has been saying for the last 15 months about how you build a more secure environment, Incre you know, increased in, you know, usage of multi-factor authentication, developing, you know, autonomous activity detection inside your networks, um, red teaming your own systems in something other than a compliance checklist manner. If they're following that SIS advice, our infrastructures, our utilities, our medium-sized businesses, even our large businesses are becoming more secure every day since, you know, that started like in September, October of 2021, like you mentioned. So I'm hoping that's happened. And here's why. That was a bad week for Vladimir Putin. It, I think it presages more bad weeks. And, and I think this is the, 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 the time he has held off on attacking Western European or U.S. critical infrastructure in a meaningful way. Um, and if you're confused about whether he can do it or not, I would just push you back to solar winds and say, look, the SVR was pretty skilled and maneuvering around our systems, penetrating government networks, penetrating, you know, hundreds of thousands of U.S. companies' networks and being re reasonably undetected for 15 months. I mean, in hindsight, I think we could see them a little bit, but at the time, not able to detect them. They have skill. And if they, and we've acknowledged they put malware in our systems in the past. We are probably vulnerable in our telecommunications and our electrical power grids uh, probably not our financial services, but our transportation systems. Our transportation system is vulnerable with no one hacking it. I mean, we've seen that in the D.C. area in the last week. Um, you know, so I am very concerned that should he turn his ire on Western Europe and the United States, and look, he's got to distract his people from the cluster that is happening down in Ukraine and Belarus, right? And to distract his people, you look for outside adversaries. You accuse the United States right. or the British of something. The British tend to be his favorite. So if I were the UK, I'd be most worried. Um, but uh, I've always said that the dog, you know, hasn't 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 bitten yet, uh, you know, in this case. And uh, and uh, I, I, you were looking at the dog that hasn't barked. I'm telling you, it's a dog that hasn't bitten. And when he attacks our critical infrastructure or Western European countries' critical infrastructure, it's going to have a painful impact. But it hasn't happened yet. I think we got a few steps closer last weekend. And uh, how is it we should be thinking about a response, right? We tend to be uh, very cautious, even if the United States has made a lot of statements in order to try to deter him from miscalculating. Uh, what's the mindset we need uh, going into this uh, in, in terms of how do we respond if he does that? 
Well, first of all, you know, we've always said that we reserve the right to respond to cyber with cyber or cyber or something else. I think with a nuclear armed adversary like this, we're going to respond to cyber with cyber. Um, so I think there will be, if he does something like this, there will be some attempt to impose cyber cost on him. And we'll probably mix it up with non-military tools like economic sanctioning. Now, look, we've sanctioned the heck out of him, but there's probably a few more I think there's a few more widgets left in the, uh, you know, we've left some specific humans off our sanctioning, some some people close to him. And I think we'll begin to move them into that into that uh, regime. On top of it, I think we do cyber attacks that have a uh, non-escalatory but equally punitive effect on Russia. Um, let me take you uh, to uh, Taiwan. Uh, you were uh, there on one of your annual uh, visits what were kind of the key technology takeaways, uh, uh, Mark? Because Taiwanese are concerned that with all, uh, right, as I mentioned, the Japanese action on JSR, the U.S. investment in chips that actually will be diminishing the importance of Taiwan and hence making Taiwan over time more vulnerable, right, as, as the world becomes less dependent on Taiwan, uh, which is a palpable uh, concern. What are, what are some of your takeaways after your trip there? Well, first, you know, and we can talk in another session. I had quite a few takeaways on the military uh, uh, um, aspects of it, but I'll set those aside and say in the technological aspects, um, the, uh, the things that struck me the most were they, they have a serious energy um, resiliency issue. And, and I say that because that's what keeps their technology moving in a blockade or a um, virtual blockade where they, the Chinese threaten to do a blockade and that cuts back shipping, you know, you know, insurance rates go up, shipping rates go up, and shipping starts to reduce. They only carry somewhere around 11 days of um, of on-island natural gas, you know, to, to keep their power plants going. Uh, they've made a decision to unilaterally shut down nuclear plants, you know, something akin to Germany, uh, with no obvious replacement uh, mechanism uh, there. Uh, so they have an energy problem that's going to that's going to cause a technology problem. And, and let me just tell you. TSMC is a lot of things. Uh, energy efficient isn't one of them, right? I mean, it is a beast, and uh, and it's a high demand on the uh, on the network. As are all, and I should say, many many other microelectronics industry companies in Taiwan that make up the totality of their of their impact as a friend, you know, as a as a friend shoring uh, uh, constituent. Um, so there's an energy issue. I also think there's a cyber resilience issue. They have got to make sure. Their electrical power goods are protected from Chinese malfeasance, that their telecommunication systems are protected from Chinese malfeasance. And they're seeing China mess with their underwater cables already. So the Chinese have shown a, 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 a willingness to, to strike at this, um, at this vulnerability in, in telecommunications. And, and then finally, I, I think the other one is, I was reminded, I went to one of their uh, uh, research and development places where they do, they've done an amazing amount of missile work on their own. You know, they've created a whole family of air-to-air -air missiles, surface-to-air missiles, and uh, ground, you know, anti-ship missiles. And, and these are pretty good systems. Um, you know, and they've done this, you know, 40 years ago, they had some help from us. And over the times they've gotten, they've through joint ventures, probably gotten a little bit of intellectual property. But truthfully, they did almost all this on their own. It's just massively impressive. And it reminds me what a dynamic economy and, and dynamic technological environment they're running there. And of course, their GDP, you know, with a couple of COVID bump years has been very strong over 15 years, you know, driven, 
you know, driven by the commitment Morris Chang and others made, you know, 20 years ago to this kind of like, you know, my, you know microelectronics uh, state. And, and, the, and you can see it there. So they have some vulnerabilities, energy, uh, you know, cybersecurity, um, you know, but, you know, honestly, you see a lot of strength there. And I don't worry about them being, you know, these sales, there's this some friend shoring, some home shoring by the United States and others. The reality is we are going to be, Taiwan is going to be a critical trade partner for the world for the next 30 years. They're not being displaced from that. Uh, and, you know, they have 62% of, of, uh, of, um, uh, of all chips and then 92% of, uh, of the really high, you know, the, the, um, the smaller ones, the, the higher complexity chips. So, and they have a ton of other microelectronic business uh, going on. So I, I have confidence in them, uh, but they do have vulnerabilities they need to address. Um, let me ask you uh, one last uh, question. We're in the summer uh, doldrums. What is it uh, folks uh, should be paying attention to maybe that they're not? Um, you know, I, I think it's, you know, we're watching, um, we're watching this big debate over AI, right? And even AI and cybersecurity. Let me just tell you uh, the other thing that goes right along with AI, and that's the cloud. And a lot of this work's going to be done there. And, you know, You've heard me you know, kind of uh, wax on or express angst about, you know, cybersecurity in the cloud. I think we really need to work, particularly with the big three cloud service providers, you know, Microsoft, Amazon, and Google, and set ourselves some standards, some minimum levels of cybersecurity. You know, there's one for those most systemically important entities that's pretty high. There's another for kind of all utilities that are part of like a national critical infrastructure. And then there's a third one for like, you know, Joe's dry cleaner and other small businesses. But everybody has to have some kind of floor of cybersecurity that they're not offered something less than. And, and that depends on your maturity, your size, your importance to the national critical infrastructure. But we've got to address this and it'll be an important part of AI as well as, uh, you know, as I think the cloud, uh, you know, I think there's gonna be uh, to a very positive effect you know, this kind of merging together of these issues. But, you know, like everything, if you don't build in cybersecurity from at the beginning, you're going to pay a premium to add it later on. Mark, always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks very much for joining us. Uh, welcome back and look forward to having you come on and talk about your broader uh, China and Taiwan lessons as well. Thanks so much. Thank you very much, Vago. Real pleasure.